Hello, MJ here. If you can't tell from the title already, this episode contains discussions about sex and sex ed. Take a moment to consider all the factors that impact your health. What comes to mind? Your diet? Perhaps your lifestyle, like whether you exercise, drink, or smoke? Maybe you thought about your family history of diseases like cancer or diabetes. But health and well-being go beyond that. The field of public health is about thinking broader, thinking beyond the individual, about how our built environment affects us, how laws and policies impact us, and how the social forces influence our behavior and well-being. Each week, this podcast will discuss one topic from the wonderful world of public health to reveal these ubiquitous hidden forces and artifacts. One episode at a time, we will show how public health is all around us. Welcome to Everything is Public Health. Everything is Public Health. Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. My name is MJ. And I'm Cass. This is part two of our discussion on abstinence-only sex education. In the previous episode, we talked about what it is, like what's the definition of abstinence-only sex education, and sort of a little bit of the history behind it, where we learned about a very nefarious tactic that they use, which is rebranding of something that doesn't work. This is part two, and we're going to continue that conversation by talking about the impact that abstinence-only sex education has. Well, one point before we go forward, they didn't rebrand something that didn't work into something that does work. No. (laughs) They rebranded something that doesn't work with public health words and tools to make people think that it does work. But it still doesn't work. Right. It still doesn't work. Because the actual content hasn't changed. And we were both thoroughly frustrated and mad that they co-opted something from public health. But, you know, we will put our personal feelings aside. No, we won't. <laughs> no, we won't. We're not going to put our personal feelings aside. There's no way. Okay. Okay. So I thought we start like a mini game show. You're the contestant, cast. You're the one and only contestant on this mini game show. I'm going to ask you a question and you're going to tell me. That means I'm guaranteed to win, right? Uh, well, we'll see. <laughs> you're guaranteed to be first. I don't know if you'll win, but you're guaranteed to be first place by <laughs> default. But okay, here we go. How many states requires contraceptions be taught? 12. 12. Okay. You're definitely from a public health background. You're very pessimistic. <laughs> but <laughs> let's introduce our expert again. Hi, my name is Caitlin Vacora. Caitlin, to reveal the answer. About 20 states in D.C. require the provision of information on contraception. So, you know, if you're thinking about all 50 states, that's the majority of states do not require the provision of contraception. Less than half. You were also on the pessimistic side. And uh, to be honest, I would be too. But less than half of the states requires contraceptives to be taught. This is so frustrating to me because the whole point of the label is that it's like sexual risk reduction. And one of the risks of having sex is sexually transmitted infections and pregnancy, which can both be minimized by certain forms of contraception. And the fact that they're not teaching or not required to teach about this just drives me bonkers. Sorry, continue (laughs) with your next question. It drives me equally frustrating as well, but you're about to get a lot more frustrated. Here we go. So keep the number of 20 in mind. 20 states requires contraception to be taught. How many states requires abstinence be taught? 25. Okay, so let's go to Caitlin for the correct answer. 39 states and D.C. require the provision of information on abstinence. Um, And so, again, that is just mentioning abstinence as one of the options, right? Okay. Now, within those 39, so for, for once, you have underestimated. So 39 states require abstinence be taught. Within that 39, how many states requires abstinence to be covered? 
and how many states require abstinence to be stressed? So, so two questions. Half and half. 18 need to cover, or, and then whatever, 21 need to stress. Okay, and the correct answer is? 11 states and D.C. require that abstinence be covered in some capacity. So again, that could be you know as a range of options, um, but it doesn't have that same kind of abstinence as being stressed. 28 states require that abstinence be stressed. And so maybe that's not necessarily abstinence only, but it requires within the curriculum that teachers are saying, abstinent, you should be abstinent. And if not, maybe that does include, oh, if not, you know, use a condom or something like that. But often it is abstinence is the way. So I, I will say it's not that abstinence, like teaching abstinence is a bad thing, right? Like abstinence is is the safest way to ensure you don't get pregnant and don't get an STI. Actually, it's the only 100% effective way of ensuring that you don't get those things. So I appreciate that it is a tool. It is one thing to be taught. But I do find it frustrating that it can be stressed to the point where it's like, this is what you have to do. Like, this is what you should be doing and not providing a robust and comprehensive set of tools to minimize harms. Yeah. And this is what Caitlin means by stress. Like, It's not just like, oh, abstinence is it's very effective, but it's like, no, abstinence is what you need to do. And so to round that up, 20 states, less than half, requires contraceptions be taught. 39, more than half, way more than half, requires abstinence only. And 28 of those 39, which is more than half of the states, again, requires abstinence be stressed. The majority of states do not require the provision of contraception. But again, you know, they have those 28 states that are requiring that abstinence be stressed. And so the overlay of the states that are requiring abstinence being stressed and the um, provision of contraception isn't isn't exact. Um, But you know, you can kind of see that there are like those disparities of the states that are just completely not providing that information on contraception and, you know, other options other than abstinence. So there is a little, there's a little bit of overlap then between states that require talking about contraception and also require covering abstinence. So that, that makes me feel a little bit less terrible, but I, I would love for more states to talk about contraception because there that means that there are a lot of states where all they're talking about is abstinence because they're not required to talk about contraception. Yeah. And uh, a, a point that I want to make is that so much of these decisions are localized. So beyond localized beyond the states, like it's not just like, oh, this is a state thing. Like a lot of those uh, education decisions are made at a very local level. So what maybe your state has an abstinence only or oh, sorry, abstinence uh, needs to be taught, but it really depends on what you know, county, what jurisdiction you live in. That that heavily determines how much of it is stress, and that heavily heavily determines like what the actual content is. So, uh, bringing it back to the theme of local elections, like local elections are really important for this. Another reason why they're really important is because so many of these decisions are made on the local level. Absolutely. Yeah. Another thing that I want to bring up is that there are actually some states that ban the specific practice of condom demonstrations. Like specifically, you cannot demonstrate how to put a condom on. One of those states is Mississippi. And I am not surprised, but I'm just, I'm struggling to, what are they worried about? Like they're worried that by showing people how to put on a condom, I don't know what they're worried about. My assumption is that if you show people how to use a condom, then that's going to drive them sex mad 
and they're going to like immediately go out and have sex rather than just like providing some education. That's that's the concern they have. I would I would guess like what what else could it be? I would guess. Yeah, I don't know what else it could be. So I mean, that's not my experience with a condom demonstration. Like it, it drove me to uh, to do something else. So in sex ed, <laughs> they did a condom demonstration and you know what did they do it on? Of course it did on a banana. Of course. Right? So they took out a banana and they put the condom on the banana and I remember not oh my god I need to I, I need to like use a condom like right now. What it did to me to my young growing mind was I don't want to eat a banana anymore. <laughs> like that's what it did to me. Like it didn't drive me to use a condom. It drove me away from bananas because seeing a condom put on a banana is like a very unsettling. But I don't know what those states were seeing, but more than one state have banned the specific practice of condom demonstration. Again, that just seems like if your goal as branded is to reduce sexual risk, if you don't teach people how to properly put on a condom, it's like, how are you actually reducing risk? Because we know that telling people not to have sex is not effective. Lots of research demonstrating that simply saying don't do it doesn't make it not happen. So if you don't teach people how to properly use contraception, they're not going to be able to use it effectively. And all those harms that you want to try to prevent aren't going to be prevented because people are going to engage in sex anyway and not know how to do it safely. Yeah. And I think, I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, this is going to be one of my, one of MJ's hot takes, but <laughs> what they really don't. MJ's hot takes. MJ's hot takes. Um, they don't really care about reducing risk. They care about preventing sex which is not a scientific thing. That's a very moral thing to do, right? If, you, if you're coming from a scientific perspective, you care, what you care about is reducing risk, right? But they're not coming from that perspective. They're coming from a preventing sex, which is a, very, a whole different moral standpoint. This is a, a slight tangent, although it's related. I think it's so interesting that in most places, because of who traditionally is elected as representatives, it's usually dudes making these decisions. Yes. And like we think about like what's covered by Medicare. Like I'm pretty sure Viagra is covered by Medicare and and all of these things because it's dudes worrying about the the benefits for themselves, but birth control, right? Like there's a huge fight over whether insurance companies should be required to cover birth control. There's a there was this great thread on Twitter by this woman who talked about like unintended pregnancies. And women get blamed for getting pregnant. Like they, they no have sense, the evidence. But, but that, that's, that's the way it is. But like women don't get pregnant on their own. No. Women are not required to have an orgasm to get pregnant. Like they, they could just lay there totally unenjoying everything and still end up getting pregnant. Or worse, unconscious. Right. What is required for an unintended pregnancy is an irresponsible male ejaculation. Like that's really what it boils down to. But they're not teaching men the responsibility that they have and the role that they have in unintended pregnancies. They say don't have sex and then they don't tell people how to prevent it. It just... it boggles my mind that the people who are in charge of these decisions in many cases, in many places, aren't the ones bearing the burden of an unintended pregnancy, which is a woman who either has to choose to terminate that pregnancy, which is a whole separate issue in terms of the state you live in and the legality, or you're the one responsible for carrying that child to term and all of the costs that come along with that, and then raising the child if you have to, or suffering having to put that child up for adoption. 
and this is why elections are important because I'll save it for the election episode. So that's kind of the state of things uh, in terms of abstinence and abstinence only or you know sex education policies in the United States. So we're definitely a little bit behind. Now let's talk about like we touched on this already in both this episode and last episode. Like what are the impacts of abstinence only? So let's start with going back to our resident expert, uh, Caitlin, and ask her about what the impacts are of abstinence only sex education. I do have some research around this, too. There was actually a federally funded evaluation on abstinence-only programs, which was conducted in 2007 by Mathematica, a policy research organization. And it was on behalf of HHS. And it found that there was no evidence that these programs actually increased rates of sexual abstinence. And so over the past 20 years, we've been getting more and more research around this. And it's there's no significant impact on the age of first sexual intercourse, number number of sexual partners, other sexual behaviors, um, kind of the, the ways that we measure, you know, if students are having sex and if they are, are they having sex safely? Yeah. So we, we touched on this already, but it doesn't work on so many levels. So it doesn't work on even on the most basic level. It doesn't work in that it doesn't actually promote abstinence. Like the first goal of maybe this will stop people from having sex. That doesn't even work. Well, it comes back to something we've talked about before, which is if your only tool is to tell people not to do something, that's not effective. Yeah. Right. Especially when it comes to teenagers, you say, hey, don't do this thing. It's, you know, risky. Yeah. Without talking about how to minimize the associated risks, like it's not going to stop people from doing it. Teenagers are super impulsive and hormonal and horny. Like they're they're (laughs) not going to stop just because you tell them not to. You have to tell them how to do things safely. And there's actually like some studies that says teens growing up in these communities where abstinence only is like the sex ed norm, they tend not to use contraceptions, which makes total sense because it's not covered in the curriculum. Absolutely. And first of all, it's not an effective strategy. And because it is not an effective strategy and you didn't provide them with other solutions, they are now exposed to the same risk with less protection because you didn't tell them what to do to protect themselves. You might as well not tell them anything. Might as well not tell them anything because that's kind of what you're doing uh, with these abstinence-only sex educations. So adding on to the fact that it doesn't work. One, I think it's ineffective at its stated goal, right? It's like we, like I just said, with that research, you know, they're not actually delaying sexual um, action or sexual um, sexual intercourse. I was like, what is that word uh, that I just said? Um, <laughs> Initiation is probably what she was thinking about. Yeah. So they're not actually delaying sexual intercourse. They're not actually reducing the number of partners. They're not actually giving the young people the information that they need to be able to obtain contraceptives, right? Or reduce the risk of pregnancy and STIs. All of that fear mongering, when you don't provide that information um, to then, you know, prevent that from happening, means that the young people are just at risk of of those things that they are they're so afraid of. Um, the, those programs are so afraid of. So really, like this, the second big area is just failing to meet the needs of the young people that they are purporting to serve, and so they don't prepare like young people for when they are sexually active and then for the young people who are are maybe are sexually active already and going through these programs they are systematically ignored right like they're not also receiving the information that they need even when they're already having sex even if they're already sexually active and one other piece is that they actually typically overlook or downplay the benefits of contraceptives um, and overemphasize the relative risk. And so, you know, often you'll see like these scary numbers about like how ineffective condoms are and things like that. 
They're super effective if you know how to use it and you only know how to use it if you get that information, right? And so, you know, you could have a young person who's able to kind of, you know, Google and figure it out, but it would be a lot more systematic if you were able to actually present that information in the classroom and make sure, you know, actually have a condom demonstration, right? Actually have those like little, like we call them woodies, like they're like little, like, you know, penis structures. And then you can like actually practice putting on the condom correctly and other things like that. But yeah, so I I think the biggest piece is just like, yeah, these young people are being failed by these programs. And and, and again, the data is showing that. One of the things that, that came up is everyone has information on, on the internet. So if we don't teach them, that's fine. They'll just find information out themselves. My response is, do you really want kids to Google things like this? Like, do you know how much of a cesspool Google is sometimes? Um, I don't think this is a great avenue for like structured, you know, safe, clinically correct information. Leaving it up to teens to go out onto the internet to find things assumes that A, everything on the internet is true, and B, that they're not going to end up in some random, totally inappropriate web page or video or something that's going to expose them to other harms or other issues, right? Like, we should not be leaving this up to kids to teach themselves. We don't yeah. leave it to kids to teach themselves how to drive. That's stupid. They would right. be crashing all <laughs> over the place, right? We have that's true. comprehensive driver's education and all of these other things to make sure that they can be safe and minimize harms. And we need to take the same approach to sex ed. Yeah, but uh, there's a reason why these things need to be systematically taught. And there's the reason why they need to be taught, you know, professionally, not just like, you know, you go looking for whatever that you think you need. Lastly, and we sort of mentioned this before, these programs are oftentimes not inclusive at all. That actually brings up another kind of um, negative impact of uh, absence-only education because, you know, a lot of these programs really rely on these gendered stereotypes on like how to teach sex ed, right, or how to how to have sex. And so um, you see a lot about like feminine passivity, um, sexual restraint, and then like linking that to femininity and then linking masculinity to these like int- this intense sex drive. You can go for hours, you can have, you know, 10 inches, blah, blah, blah. Like all of that is is kind of woven into some of these abstinence-only programs. Um, and that's also because they are notorious for not including LGBTQ young people in their in their programs, right? And so um, quite often, like, the the sex that they're talking about is is totally heterosexual. Um, there's, like, no um, – there's no inclusion of trans and non-binary young people, um, lesbian, gay, bisexual young people. All of those young people are left out of these programs. So not only are, like, all young people not receiving the information that they need, but in fact, um, these – LGBTQ young people are are you know not seeing themselves at all in this in these programs, um, and so and again like we know um, the the data bears out that LGBTQ young people are actually you know um, for example uh, lesbian and bisexual women are actually at a higher risk for unintended pregnancy, um, which is really interesting and you would never like uh, for me. I thought I learned that in in grad school and I was like holy cow I had no idea. Um, and it's because um, people assume that they don't need the information on how to prevent pregnancy. But if they have sex with someone who can get them pregnant, then, you know, they do need that information, right? Yeah. I and mean, it's the same thing again, which is a lot of these programs are 
very marriage centered. They're very uh, heteronormative centered, and it's all about sex as a reproduction. And I think it also really makes sex very stigmatizing, right? If sex is only for reproduction, then if you do sex not for reproduction, oh, then you're you know you're doing something bad, and that's if you do sex. <laughs> yeah, if you do sex, that's not for reproducing. <laughs> You're doing something bad, and that's that's sort of the undertone with these abstinence-only programs. And yeah, and it just goes everything just loops back to they don't really care about reducing risk. They, what they really care about is preventing sex for whatever whole slew of reason that they have. Sex is bad, okay? Yeah, that's that's sort of the though that's where they're coming from. So I don't want to get too much into this, but I did read this very interesting article that sort of talked about how essentially the two side of the political or moral divide, they have very different understanding for what is acceptable and what is not. Okay. What are they? So on one side, you know, I'm not going to make too much of a metaphor, so I don't want to, you know, point any fingers, but let's just label them, you know, blue and red, right? So that's totally two arbitrary random colors. <laughs> totally arbitrary. Yeah. yeah they don't, they don't mean anything at all. No, 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 no. <laughs> so on the blue side, their, their moral structure is kind of like this. Sex ed is okay. Sex is generally okay, but we want to prevent teen pregnancies and STIs because those are not okay for reasons STIs because well they're they're literally a disease, right? And teen pregnancy generally not okay for the blue side because well biologically speaking it's very taxing on the body and from a resource perspective like it takes a lot to raise a kid, it takes a lot to grow a kid and it just mentally speaking maybe the teen is not ready, so teen pregnancy is generally something that we want to prevent. That's what the blue side's moral standpoint is. You're laughing. Growing a kid. I'm sorry. Just <laughs> the way you, the way you framed that. How's we just like it? made me? I don't know. It just made me think of like coconuts growing on trees. I don't know why. <laughs> said growing a kid growing? takes a lot of resources to grow a kid. I immediately thought of coconuts on trees. Coconuts. Don't, I don't know. I'm in a I'm in a weird place this morning. I haven't had enough coffee. But um, so that's the blues moral standpoint, and the red side's moral standpoint is. Sex ed is not okay because sex is not okay. Sex before marriage is not okay. Abstinence is the only way because sex is not okay. STI, they're pretty neutral on. And here's the kicker for them, for the red side, teen pregnancy is okay if we marry them immediately after because abortion is not okay, right? So their their mindset is not so much about preventing teen pregnancy. Their mindset is more if a pregnancy does occur, then as long as we make it like within the realm of marriage, that's that's an okay thing to do because to to the red side, an abortion is more negative than it is for a teen to to be pregnant. So that's their moral standing, and you can kind of see like where because of these different moral systems that they use, their attitude towards sex ed is going to be drastically different. And it just brings that stigma back into it that we've been talking about like you shouldn't be having sex it's it's a bad thing to do you should only be doing it in the context of marriage right which we've talked about the issues with that but then if you do engage in something if you do engage in sex you have no minimized risk because nobody taught you anything yeah and i i just think how it's i mean i i don't quite understand it because i'm not from the red side of things because to them sex is not okay but teen pregnancy is okay if you get married. Well, because the the whole, you know, marriage related like the that sex is a core part of marriage or that like marriage is a necessity for you to have sex. It's like, oh, well it's okay because like now we'll 
you'll get married, and then we'll ignore the fact that you engaged in premarital sex because then your child will be born in wedlock. So it's, I think, I don't want to go too deep into this, but this is sort of the moral structures that we're dealing with, and therefore that kind of explains their different attitudes. So, and I want to talk about from there an extension of that, the sort of the negative consequences to both of those attitudes. So for one of the negative consequences for the blue side is that by delaying pregnancy, there is some preliminary study that shows that a lot of people in the blue side, they're delaying childbearing to the point where infertility becomes an issue. They're delaying when to have a kid, sometime, you know, very late. Well, I will say this is probably not related to what you were thinking, but there's a lot of pressure for women to either be moms or have a career. And it can be very hard for women to do both, uh, particularly depending on where they work. There may not be good maternity leave, you know, benefits, all that kind of stuff. We don't have the system in place to support it. Right. And so women who want to get a good education and get a good career, they're delaying because, you know, there's a lot of stigma around like you can't be a mom and have a career kind of thing. So that's on the blue side. That's sort of the consequences that their moral frameworks are dealing with. And on the red side, their consequences is obviously high rates of teen pregnancy, high rates of STI, and high rates of divorce. Uh, and it's I don't want to get too much into like what side's consequences is worse, but I guess we can objectively say that at the very least, STIs are bad. Like we, I think we can all agree that uh, if this world doesn't have any STIs, that'd be great. So just from that. Oh, absolutely. So many STIs have really long-term consequences. Some of them are treatable. Some of them are not. Yeah, some some last with you forever. Some can be treated, but even if you can treat them, if you don't catch them right away, you can have some other sort of comorbid things that happen. So, not not a good thing to get an STI. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, we can spend all day discussing whether teen pregnancy is a bad thing, whether you know delaying fertility is a bad thing, and we can discuss all day about the trade-offs, but. We're not going to do that here. I just want to put sort of the consequences of both sides out there. Uh, In terms of solutions, uh, we're back to voting again because a lot of these decisions are made on a local level. And actually, Caitlin has a special message for us. Ways to counteract or like possible solutions that you can do as an individual. And one of them is, you know, calling your congressperson and saying, you know, this, I don't want my money to go to these programs. What are you going to do to, you know, oppose these programs? What what kind of support um, can I give you for that? And again, like, it's just, yeah, it's part of that whole, like, budget allocation every year. Um, and so we actually do have a say. Our Congress people have a say in how that money is allocated. Yeah. So, again, voting really, really matters. And Caitlin brought up this very uh, important point, which is you can actually call your representatives directly. They have a legal responsibility to actually listen to you. And vote down ballot. Yes, always. And vote in midterm and local elections, right? Like, don't just... Vote as much as right, you can. Don't just vote for the president and your senators and representatives. Vote for sheriffs. Vote for judges. Vote for, you know, mayors and city council. Vote in every election for every position because... These local representatives can impact you so much more than you might realize.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word so more and more people can learn about the wonderful, omnipresent essence of public health. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at EverythingIsPH or Instagram at EverythingIsPublicHealth. Send us questions or comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Also reach out to us if you think we miss an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Krafasi. And if you really want to see some of my delicious gluten-free baking creations, a lot of cupcakes on there, you can follow me on Instagram at CassPhD. Please also give us a rating and review on wherever you listen to your podcast. It does help us immensely. Don't forget to like, share, and comment as well. If you want to support the podcast directly, we have a Patreon page, and you can find the link for that in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health. Special thanks to our featured guest, Caitlin Vacora, for her perspective and contribution to both episode four and episode five. You can find her podcast at Between the Pages. New episodes coming out in September. You can follow her on Instagram at Between the Pages Pod. 